Okay, so <clears throat> first everybody hears the loud rushing wind. And let me read this quote from, uh, from R. Kent Hughes. Page 30. Well, let's see, here's what, here's what I got marked. The Spirit's coming is in continuity of God's purpose in giving the law, and yet the Spirit's coming signals the essential difference between the Jewish faith and commitment to Jesus. Okay, this is referring back to what I was talking about earlier, with the, just the importance of the day. The former is Torah-centered and Torah-directed. The latter is Christ-centered and Spirit-directed. So Pentecost has occurred by divine arrangement. So we hear it. So the, the the rushing wind comes, and then then in verse three it says that there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. So that is a visual manifestation of God's spirit. Um. And the language there seems to indicate there was one flame that appeared in the room, and then it, and then it divided and went to each individual person. So there was one flame divided into many. There's significance to that, too. So I'm going to read this, this next quote. It says, first wind, then fire. Fire is a symbol of God's presence throughout the Bible, beginning with Moses and the burning bush in Exodus. Continuing with the consuming fire on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. Fire at Pentecost indicated God's presence. Just as it's rested on Israel, demonstrated a corporate unity. However, a new significance came when the fire divided into flames, dancing over the individual apostles. The Spirit now rests on each believer individually. The emphasis from Pentecost onward is on the personal relationship of God to the believer through the Holy Spirit. So then he goes on to say, the inner pillar of fire burns away our dross, flames forth from our inner being, and brings to us a sense of God's presence and power, the fire of God. So that's important to see there that each person had their own individual flame. So there's a new thing here now. It's individual relationships. And then, uh, in verse 4, And they were all being filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So right after that quote, it says this, First wind, then fire, then divinely empowered utterance. In the Old Testament, inspired speech was regularly associated with the Spirit's coming upon God's servants, as in the case of Eldad and Medad in Numbers 11, and of Saul in 1 Samuel. Pentecost was a day par excellence of such speech. To the observant Jew, it was easy to see that the Holy Spirit had come. When he comes to God's people, he brings wind, fire, and utterance. So that's what happened to the apostles, right? They were, they were indwelt. There were manifestations of God, both audible, visual, and speech-wise. So, 
And that's what drew all these people to this area. These loud rushing winds, and there's this light coming from the top of this room. There's flickering light coming out of this room. It's weird. Let's go check it out. Just imagine if there was a, you know, suddenly a tornado wind across the street. Most of us would go rushing over there to see what was going on. That's what's happening here. And um, so, ah, man, we were going to talk about what happened in the apostles, but we got a lot to cover, so we'll just we'll just go with that. So, all these people come and they see this fire, they hear this wind, and they hear these people speaking in languages that are not their own. And um, and there was a good quote here I want to read. Anyway, the people respond in, in two different ways. They all come together, and, they're, and it says in verse 7, it says they were amazed and astonished. Because, you know, this is pretty amazing and pretty astonishing stuff that's happening. Now, what I, what I think, what we got to get out of this here, well, there's a lot of things. The main thing here is these people are being shown that something is happening. Something supernatural is going on in Jerusalem today. And there's a sermon coming that's going to explain what they're seeing. But even Peter's sermon is geared toward telling these people, look, prophecy is being fulfilled right here today. That's, that's what's happening. I know you're all confused, and, but this is what's going on. A new chapter in redemptive history is being opened today. That's, that's what's that's the that's the significance or one significance of these events. And so the Jews were all hearing them speaking their own language. They were amazed and astonished. And then it, it names all these different languages that they were hearing speak. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity. And they said to one another, okay, here's the question. What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, ah, oh, they're full of sweet wine. So there was kind of two responses here. Some people were just blowing it off. And then some people were saying, oh, man, this is important. What was happening? So it says, all were amazed. This is back in the book again. It says, all were amazed perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But the others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. So some committed the fatal, fatal error of... Attributing the supernatural to natural causes. They were modern men, it says. They were modern men, spiritually indifferent. They flippantly made light of the most important things of life and went on their self-sufficient way. Others were amazed and utterly at a loss, saying, what does this mean? These honest hearers sought answers. And wonderfully, as the chapter goes on to record, some 3,000 believed that day and were saved. And so there's a really good quote at the end of this section. I feel like I'm missing some stuff. Alright. So let me read this in, this end quote. It's kind of the end of this little section. 
So what does this mean? It means that the Holy Spirit brings new life to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And with that life comes a continuing power to those who are continually filled. It means fire in our lives, individually burning away the chaff, and flaming out to those around us. It means the truth of God going forth from us in a way we would never have dreamed of. The divine utterance of God through us. It means communication, joy, thankfulness, and submission to one another. What does this require of us? The same thing it required from the apostles and those 3,000 followers. Emptiness. An acknowledgement that we need Christ. God helps us have faith and respond to the gospel. And that is how we become Christians and receive the saving baptism and fullness of the Holy Spirit. Then once we are Christians, God's persistent work in our lives liberates us from the idea that we can live the Christian life on our own. On our own. Each time we acknowledge our inadequacy, he fills us more with his spirit so that we can carry on his work. He will not fill our sails with the wind of the Holy Spirit unless we admit that our sails are indeed empty. This requires humility and confession. The apostles were living in empty dependency until the filling came. So the key to the spirit-filled Christian life is found in a paradox. Cultivating an attitude of perpetual emptiness brings with it a perpetual fullness. Jesus said it like this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But again, like I said, this is, this is a clear sign to these people. Something is happening here. Something important is going down in town. Okay. So the next section is Peter's sermon. And we'll start there in verse 14. Let's read, let's read it. This is going to be verse 14 and verse 41. But Peter, okay, so let's remember what's happening. Everybody has come to this room because they hear this sound. Now, there's one thing we need to think about. We know that 3,000 people are saved here. Okay. This room is in the middle of the city of David. And so at some point, even though it's not recorded here, we have to assume that this whole thing moved from this room to the temple. Because there's really no other where or no other place where Peter could address this many people at one time. And it's just right over there. And so I think it would, would be safe to say that this sermon is happening at the temple, probably on Solomon's porch, on the south side of the mount, going down where that hill goes down toward the pool of Siloam, and that's probably where all these people were baptized at when it's over. But let's move our thinking now from the upper room to the temple, okay? And that's significant for a couple of things. One is all this is going on in front of the temple priests, you know, and the Levites. They, they, know, they see what's happening. And when all these people start getting baptized, that, that would not just be a little small thing in this, in this Jewish community because... In their culture, that means you're saying, yeah, I'm a, I was a Gentile and now I'm a, I'm a Jew. I mean, that's what baptism was before the New Testament church. That was when a, when a Gentile converted to Judaism, they would be baptized as, as an, a symbol of clean, cleansing away their uncleanliness. They're, become, you know, they're no longer a goyim or whatever. So let's move our thinking now to the temple right, for this sermon. Okay, but Peter, he's taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. 
So he's going to answer their question. Right? What was the question? What does this mean? So he's going to give them the answer. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, or it is only the third hour of the day. So it was about 9 o'clock in the morning now. So, I mean, okay, this just hit me. If it's, it's 9 o'clock, the sun's been up for about three hours, and it says that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, it's when the Spirit started, so that would have been right at, kind of right at daybreak. So three hours have passed here. Yeah, but when the day had fully come, that's when it was. That's when day breaks on the new day. The day does start in the evening, but the day they consider the day to be fully come when the sun comes up on this new day. That's what mine doesn't say fully come, but some do. But we know it's the third hour of the day, so it's about nine o'clock in the morning. So if we, I'm thinking there's about three hours has passed since this wind first occurred. So they probably all moved to the temple here. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. So here he's going to lay it on them. This is prophecy being fulfilled. You all know, we, we, you know, we read this all the time. We go to synagogue and we read the prophets. So here's what's happening. We all know what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall come to be in the last days, God says, that I will pour, pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Okay, so there's, there's, the, there's the beginning of the church age. Basically, or the age of grace, as we call it. So this whole thing from 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 Joel is basically a snapshot of the age of grace, beginning and end, and what it means. So that's there's the beginning. I'm gonna pour forth my spirit, and your young men shall see visions and all that. And then he then he goes on to say, and this is the end of the age. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapors of smoke. And the sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And that's why I say that, because it, that great and glorious day of the Lord, that is the end of the age. Always. When that's when the day of the Lord is said in the scripture, it's always talking about the end of the age. Before judgment. Judgment, yeah. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's that's the significance of this period of time. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so he's saying, men of Israel, listen to these words. So there's his explanation. You want to know what's happening? Here it is. This is what Joel spoke of. God is pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Not now. This is what's happening. So pay attention, he's saying. Pay attention. So things are happening. And you know, everybody knows what's been going on in Jerusalem. I mean, Jesus has been, Jesus was crucified. Everybody's talking about how, man, so-and-so said he saw him, you know, the other day. He was eating with so-and-so's house, and so-and-so said they saw him walking down the road with some people, and he was telling them about this and that. I mean, he's being cited all over the place. Could you, just, uh, just try to put yourself in the situation here. What's going on in Jerusalem? All this has been happening. Jesus' ministry, Jesus' crucifixion, 
all these sightings of his res of the resurrected Jesus. All this is all this stuff is happening, you know. And then now suddenly this is happening on this day. The, the prophet Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled. So basically, hey, important things are happening right now. Pay attention. Wake up. Listen to me. Listen to what I'm going to say. And then he starts telling them about Jesus. And so this is like the prototype sermon that we will see throughout Acts. Obviously, not every sermon is recorded because they would, I mean, golly, how could we ever read them all? But they all would have followed this basic, basic same, you know, theme or outline, let's say. It's about Jesus. So we're going to see everything is here in this in these words he's about to say. Jesus is incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension are all here. So, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazarene, a man tested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. So he said, okay, this guy Jesus, we all know about him. We all heard about him. A lot of us saw him, talked to him. We saw him perform miracles. So he's been attested to you by God that he is that he is who he says he is. This man, so there's his incarnation right there. He said, this, this, this man. A man attested to you by God. So there's his, there's his incarnation. He was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. There's his crucifixion. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So there's his resurrection. And then he then he gives some proof here, because he already knows what they're going to say. He says, David said of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. So that is what? Psalm. That's Psalm 16. I haven't even looked at my notes. <laughs> so question number one, what does it mean? So Peter, he begins by quoting Joel, chapter 2, verse 28-29. He gets the promise of the Holy Spirit and the great day of the Lord. So what Peter's arguing here is that a new age has arrived. There's a, the new thing that God talked about, I'm going to do a new thing that's happening. And this is a new event in redemptive history. So in verse 22 through 37, Peter explains about Jesus. We just read that, or some of it. So in verse 22, he talked is the incarnation where he calls him a man. In verse 23 is the crucifixion. In verse 24 is the resurrection. And he says it can't be David because he, he quotes Psalm 16, 8 through 11 right there. He says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. 
And so he says, a brother, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, that's notice how he calls David a patriarch right here. Luke calls him, I mean, uh, Peter called him a patriarch. I believe, I believe that's because he had a special covenant with David. Normally, the patriarchs are like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But, but he refers to David as one of the patriarchs because of the Davidic covenant. God made a covenant specifically with David that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Anyway, that's just a side note. So he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So what he's saying here is, look, we just walked by David's tomb on the way here. Because David's tomb ain't wasn't far. It's not far from that upper room. It's like four streets over. According to the digs that they've done in the city of David. He said, man, we just passed right near it. We just walked right by it. We all know where he's buried. So obviously this is not talking about David. David is not referring to himself here. David's dead in the grave. But David was a prophet. Guess who he was talking about? Jesus. Who was risen from the dead, and we've all seen him. Now remember, three witnesses in Jerusalem met me, and it was true. And they're going, man, we got 120 people standing right here. Every one of us will testify right now. We saw him walking around, living and breathing and eating after he was buried. Right? So that's a big deal. So, but Peter's given a really good argument here. He's just That's what a sermon is. It's an argument. He's saying something's happening. Major events in redemptive history. Jesus is who David was talking about. This event you've witnessed, that's what Joel was talking about. This is Old Testament prophecy and scripture being fulfilled before your very eyes on this day. All right, so let's keep going. So in verse 33, we see the ascension. And he does another argument here. He says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God... And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, this which you both see and hear. This Jesus, he's saying, Jesus has done this. Because he's at the right hand of the Father he's right now. We saw him go up into the sky. We saw it. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, right? David's in the grave over here. But he himself says, this is what David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what's he telling them? This man Jesus, who you all saw walk around Jerusalem, probably saw him hanging on the cross. It was buried. We all saw him alive afterwards. We all watched him go into heaven. He is right now sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, waiting till such time as his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. And he will return and sit on the glorious throne of David and rule and reign and rule in this earth as the new Adam. That's what he's telling them. Okay? This Jesus is in heaven right now, sitting by the Father. Uh, that's, that's exciting. <laughs> so therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Boy, don't we need preachers to preach like that again? Boy, could we use that? 
I don't care what you say or what you think about me. You cruci- you put Jesus on the cross. Your sin put him there. You need to repent and believe and be baptized. Such a simple message. But boy, people hate it. But anyway, this is a great sermon. So now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Because guess what? The Holy Spirit is here. And what does he come to do? To convict people of their sin and their unbelief. He's present here. Jesus, I mean, you know, Peter, he's he's exercising the gift of prophecy here. Spirit-filled preaching. That's what's happened here. He is telling people the truth. And they are responding to it. They were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter the Apostles, Brethren, here's the second, the second question. What shall we do? Because they're believing what he said. They have and so Peter said to them, Repent. And each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, as many as our Lord God will call to himself. And so I'm not sure there. That sounds like he's saying this for everybody. For you, for your children, and those far off with being Gentiles. Because in the you know, in the temple, the Gentiles could only enter into the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't even enter into the court of the women. So you had the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, then the court of the men. Or the court it was called the court of the court of the Israelites, then you had the court of the women. And then way outside was the court of the Gentiles. And they could only go that far in. And so when Paul was talking, wrote the Ephesians you know, in, verse, in chapter 2, like verse 11, he says, those who are, who are far off have been brought near. He's talking about the Gentiles. And I, I guess Peter's saying here, he's telling them that this is for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, but yes, because it's later. Remember, we read it to the day when he's reporting back when Cornelius is, is saved. And he says, man, the same gift we received was given to Cornelius' family. And then I remembered what Jesus said, that this would go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and into the ends of the world. And so who am I to tell God who he can or can't save? Yeah, it seems like something clicked with him during that whole. That's what it seems like. But he says here, for those those of you who are far off, I mean, I have to think he's talking about us there. That's us. We're the ones who are far off, and we've been brought near. The body wall has been torn down. It's just wonderful. It's glorious. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And we don't know what those other words were, but I'm assuming it would follow the same pattern. He probably picked other prophecies said, look, remember the prophecy Isaiah? Here's here's its fulfillment. Remember when um, Jeremiah said this? Here's its fulfillment. Remember when Paul would go to these synagogues and he, he would always say, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. I think that's what this is. This is just Peter reasoning with these people from the scriptures and saying, look, this stuff is happening. These things are being fulfilled. Jesus has fulfilled all of these Remember what Isaiah said? Man, Jesus filled all that stuff. Look at it. Think about it. Look at what's happening around you, right? Look at me. Look at Peter, right? About 50 days ago, 
he wouldn't stand in the court in Caiaphas's courtyard, and some young sermon girl said, "Hey, he's one of Jesus' disciples." He was, "No, nope, nope, not me. Uh-uh. You talking about somebody else? You're not putting me on a cross with him." And here, now here he is at the temple in front of all these people. I mean, you know, there's got to be Levi standing in his back, listening to every word he's saying, and he's saying, "You." Put him on a cross, the Lord in Christ. God's sovereignly ordained for this happened, and you did it. So what a difference the Spirit can make, right? I mean, look at Peter. Just look at what's happening here. It is amazing what's happening right here. This is all out in the open, right in front of God and everybody. They're doing this. Knowing Jesus was just killed for saying the same stuff. You know, so anyway... <clears throat> so he made his arguments you know David was talking about Jesus in these Psalms this cannot be David because David is not in heaven he's in a grave over there we just walk right by on the way over here <coughs> Psalm 110 because yeah. Psalm 110 verse 1 that's what he quotes right there so they, they asked him next question number 2 is what do we do and then Peter offers them the way of salvation. And so, so then those who were those who received his words, or those who received the message, okay, the, the message of salvation, which is what happened to us. At some point, we received the message and we believed it, right? And that day, there were added about three thousand souls. Here's another thing that's fitting about this day. So we know. 3,000 people accepted Christ as the Messiah right there and believed the message that Peter preached. Turn to Exodus chapter 32, verse 25. This is something I did not know. I'll set my new little bookmark. Exodus 32, verse 25. We'll read 25, 26, 27, and 28. <coughs> this is at the giving of the law. When they made the golden calf, and uh, Moses came down off the mountain. All right, so here, here's what it says. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever's for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and, what is and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. That's something. So on the day the law was given, 3,000 Israelites were slain for disobedience to the law. And then here today, when the Spirit's given, 3,000 first fruits are given to the Lord in salvation. Now, man, that's a heck of coincidence. I don't believe that's coincidence. That is God reigning and ruling from his throne. That's what that is. That is... Um, 
What's the Westminster Confession say? It says that uh, God from eternity past has sovereignly ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And man, if you don't believe it, look at this. I mean, that's obviously sovereignly ordained providence in God's providence right there. 3,000 now the day of the giving of the law. 3,000 are saved at the giving of the Spirit. I still There's, think we need that t-shirt. Which nothing comes into fruition without God's permission. Yeah. I, another cool saying I was heard the other day about this, about the Spirit. He said, Spirit is not given for your enjoyment. It's given to you for God's employment. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was neat. That that, uh, that contrast between the law and the and, and law and grace right there. So and also as, as I mentioned that being baptized would have been a big deal here. These people are openly um, inside of the temple because the pool of Siloam is from Solomon's porch. You go down off the temple mount, and down at the bottom there's this pool. It's been it's been excavated and all. It's about the size of an Olympic swimming pool plus one third. It's huge. But it's shallow and it's about waist deep maybe. And so most likely this is where these 3,000 people were baptized right out in public. What time is it? 18. Okay. I'm 19. Okay. I didn't figure we was going to get to the third section. Yes, that's okay. And uh so yeah, this would have caused quite a stir amongst the people. All these, all these Jews standing out there in that pool being baptized as if they were Gentile converts, right, right inside of the temple with the priests and all. This would have been quite the, quite the sight. All these people lining up to be baptized by these men. But so, did we get to the end of that section? Where did we stop? So then those who had received his words, who received the message, were baptized. Yeah, so we'll start back at verse 42. It says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles. So here, the next section is we're going to see the church where the Spirit reigns. Or the church where the Spirit reigns. Uh, we're going to see the response of the people to this, to this event and this sermon. And we're going to see the birth of the church. And we're going to see like the archetype of the New Testament church right here. It's, it's, uh, it's a very detailed description of what happened. Or, you know, how this how this body formed with these first 3,000. So we're going to see um, Luke records for us kind of how the people responded to this. And so that was supposed to be part three today, but we're out of time. So we'll pick up there next week. We could probably spend all day on this next week because this is pretty, pretty good stuff. I kind of rushed through here, but I think I got most of my points across I wanted to make. I don't see any gaping holes in my notes here. But this just just one more thing. This, this, when this happened to the apostles, you know, what we see, the noise and the fire and the, and the language. If there were things happening in the apostles as well. Their, their whole outlook changed. Remember I talked about how Paul Peter became a very bold preacher 
who stood out there in front of all these people, in front of all these Levites, and proclaimed Christ as Lord in Christ, in front of all these, of all these people. If you remember before this, you know, the apostles were not very much in subjection to one another. Their main concern was who's going to sit on the left hand, who's going to sit on the right hand. You know, who's going to be the leader in the, in the kingdom? Who's going to, when's the kingdom coming? Are we going to be governors? You know, but then after this, they're just they're in subjection to one another. And, uh, man, just imagine if you're sitting there listening to Peter preach. And he goes, instead of saying, okay, turn to John chapter 3, he just says, okay, everybody turn to John. And everybody just turns and looks, and there's John. <laughs> and John says, okay, little children, let me tell you what I saw on this day at this event, what Jesus said. Let me tell you what Jesus said. You know, just think about that. How cool that is. But see, so, so some things were happening in the apostles. You know, they were becoming Christians, true spirit-filled Christians. You know, they were... They were submitting to one another. They were bold in their proclamations. They were no longer fearful of what men could do to them, the way Jesus had instructed them. Don't fear man, fear God. And so, and then some things happened through the apostles, which was not the giving of this sermon, the explanation to the people of what's happening. You know, they were telling, explaining, and, and giving some context of what these people were seeing. So, it's a big, it's a big event. I mean, this is, it's just God with us. You know, that's what this is. It may not be the incarnation of Christ, but man, it's important. So anyway, anything, anybody? Do we have time? Sorry, y'all. I'm a talker, I guess.